across India. He's uh, circumambulated Mount Kailash and uh, been a great friend to those of us in Massachusetts. I first heard Ajahn Suchito here 18 years ago in the basement, and uh, I took him as my teacher at that time. It's, I get really choked up about this, but Ajahn, thank you very much. If you want to get his teachings, they are available at ajansuchito.org. That's a really good place. There are a number of others, you know, Dharma Seed Library, even YouTube. Um, you can get some great talks there. And uh, the donations to the teacher tonight will be going to the BuddhistGlobalRelief.org. So, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Well, <clears throat> Hearing all that, I think I need to take a break. <laughs> so, you know, once you can pack into 40 years, isn't it? <clears throat> so, uh, try and get this right. So, everybody, could, can you hear me okay at the back? Yeah? Just let me know. Stick your hand behind you if my voice drops. It occasionally does. <clears throat> So the title of tonight's talk, Mindfulness and the Relational Field. Mm -hmm. Partly, you know, uh, so some, I think, relatively familiar concepts, perhaps. Mindfulness, you must have heard a zillion times. Uh, relational field, perhaps a little more. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, one way of explaining this in strict Buddhist terms is the principle called Itapachayata, which means uh, dependent arising, mutual codependency. Another way of looking at that is you have the experience of forms, you know, through seen through the eye, seen felt through the body, heard through the ear, definite, seemingly things, even mental things, and that's rupa. And every sense door is said to open and bring this experience of rupa form. Visual form, tactile form, olfactory form, an object of some kind. Rupa. But you can't really have rupa, the experience of rupa, without some something that apprehends that. So this is the consciousness is the action of bringing that in, and that which apprehends it is called nama, naming, and this involves certain qualities such as a certain uh, intention to attend to and to turn towards that form, an attention to frame it up, a perception to recognize it in terms of that which we have already learnt, yeah, or to acquire learning. So we learn what a dog or a cow or a car or a bell is, yeah. And so you build up this lexicon of meanings, sanya perception. Feeling, everything that we apprehend gives some kind of quality of agreeable, disagreeable, want more of it, want less of it, shut it out, bring it in, yeah, yeah, some some tremble feeling. Mm. 
So this is nama. And so there's this experience, rupa, nama, consciousness, and it's relational. That is, obviously you can't have a nama without some rupa to do your naming on. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, every nama is is looking for some rupa to bond with, to get ruping on. And consciousness is that which does the liaisons, which brings the thing in. So it's all related. And around that set model, you know, the qualities of intention that arise within this naming quality can start to perform actions upon the form, the thing. We can chisel it, we can push it away, we can eat it, we can paint it, we can kick it, we can kill it, we can cuddle it. So definitely relationship occurs. (laughs) in a very obvious way, and all kinds of subtler forms of that. So this inner essential relatedness gives rise to active relationships in the discernible world that become the source of our occupation and the source of our karma. That is, as these intentions cathect onto objects, certain tendencies are activated the tendency towards uh, generosity, the tendency towards fear, the tendency towards hatred, the tendency towards love, and so forth. So intentionalities project or activate onto the world of things. And according to what particular tendencies are activated, that is karma. (laughs) And that tends to lay down models of behavior that then begin to emanate throughout this model. So nature is if we act with malice and intent towards others, sooner or later that quality of malice and intent will be directed towards our apparent self. Our self gets modeled, gets formed through these relationships. I become an angry person. I become fearful, and of course I'm many people. Sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I'm fearful, sometimes I'm joyful, sometimes I'm generous. So this is the karma. The karma creates the experience of an entity, a self, who, who is the result of these intentions and inclinations. And the nature of relationship is, as those intentions become myself, that very much patterns the next set of intentions that happen because I learn those, I get modelled in them, I get acclimatised in them. People, in fact, sometimes encourage me in them. Sometimes I even form relationships um, based upon those core intentions. Negative relationships, you know, people we detest, people we fear, and they stay in us. They stay in us and they activate in us when our eyes are closed and we're asleep, they're still there. And after 20 years, they're still there. And they chatter, and they mumble, and they moan, and they blame, and they accuse, and they seduce, and they make us sad, they make us happy. You know, this is karma. And it generates the self, and the self then generates more karma, and so it goes. This is the relational matrix uh, of dependency. Mm. Yeah. And as we you know, clearly recognize many of that, those relational tendencies are quite destructive. Uh, Many of them are confused. 
because one of the one of the features that begins to occur in this is uh, this quality called <laughs> ignorance or not really seeing and not seeing there's the imagining that there's a separate self rather than the self being a result and a potency for further action just if you like a a generative immaterial quality of intentionality and memory and perception it becomes an entity an entity often vaguely sensed to, to be living in this body mm. because of course this is where all the sense doors uh, come back to it's very embodied and it's a separate entity once the entity, as the entity is established, then naturally it, it's concerned about the world around it. And it realizes there might be something rather enjoyable out there. And there might be something rather fearful out there. So it gets very busy uh, to make sure that the painful doesn't happen to it and to make sure as best it can that the pleasant happens to it as long as possible. This keeps this self very, very busy. (laughs) 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 Because when this uh, experience is happening through the entire potential of the relational domain, it's not just the visual world or the olfactory realm. We have a vast psychological realm that the self is inhabiting with a sense of what will I be in the future? What do others think of me? Why did he really do that? What do you think she meant? What about him? Those people I knew five years ago, what he never did, I wish she would. The world internalized. And the self gets very busy (laughs) because this is the door that doesn't shut. You can close your eyes, you can close your ears, but the mind door doesn't shut. So the self gets busy day and night (laughs) dealing with its world. This is the relational domain. It's multifaceted, it's both. We can see it obviously in the sensory domain in which it seems to exist in a spatial domain domain that extends in front of us around us for some indeterminate distance Hmm? see so where do you live I live in uh, America no no where do you live I live in Cambridge no no where do you live I live in whatever Main Street yeah where do you live 33 Main Street where do you live well there's a little room upstairs (laughs) now where do you live Where do you live all the time? Hmm? You live in your world, don't you? (laughs) And any of those apparent spatial domains can be places of memory, anticipation, uh, opportunity, seemingly obstructed, blocked, frustrated, fearful, joyful, whatever. You live in your world, and your world is not really spatial. It's played out on a spatial presentation that consciousness affords. The eyes open and a consciousness says, oh look, there's a world out there. 
and then you can walk around on it and you yeah the senses will give you that but as you'll recognize wherever you go the real world is uh, happening on another level mm. not independent because of course what's happening on the sensory domain can trigger these psychological karmic tendencies of you know you name it intentions confused intentions when I say intentions these are not necessarily deliberately considered plans these are reflex reactions you could say some are deliberate some are reflexive some are we despair over them here I am getting all upset again I wish I wasn't you know so it's just kind of that flicker of the heart to to jump out and so of course our practice is acknowledges begin to work on those those jumps of intentionality and uh, you know this is where we are uh, meditating you could say Now, as well as I meditate, or as I have meditated, or however it's happened for me, certainly the beginning of this practice is, here I am, I'm being afflicted, confused, I want to get my head together. Okay, focus on this particular point, get steady, get calm. Focus on breathing in and out, just stay with that. Let all those gibbering voices quieten down. Um, Okay. I'll try again. (laughs) 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 And uh, (laughs) yeah, there's a breath in here somewhere. (laughs) 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 And just then, we'll just really get those things out of here. Force. (laughs) Uh, Force. Uh, Force. Then after force comes, I think there's something wrong with me. I don't think I'm going to make this. I think there's something, maybe it's something I did or didn't do, and so I think there's something wrong with me. You know, the self, having come out with its, um, we'll, we'll do this strategy, begins to meet. Yeah. I can't, I don't seem to be very good at this. Maybe I'll find some new systems and techniques to tweak it a bit. And yeah, so self gets fairly busy tweaking. <laughs> So as it eventually will, you know, calm down this, maybe some of you start to look at this stuff and bliss will open or calm or emptiness or wisdom or nibbana or something will kind of open out of this thing, you know. And you get, definitely different things occur. Uh, And then as we probably also recognize how, you know, possible it is to, you know, actually do get some quiet and then you're on retreat and all that, the triggering is put to one side as best it could do because nobody's bothering you, nobody's talking to you, you know, you're not, you don't have to figure anything out. You come out of that feeling pretty nice and maybe three days later you're kind of in a snarling argument with somebody. And wow, where did all that go? Uh, You see, what tends to uh, occur, e- even for the meditator, is, of course, this sense of self. And the fundamental being's uh, uh, wish or aim is to get this self 
as steady and as reliable as possible. And that seems quite appropriate and reasonable uh, request to make. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and I'm, I'm there for that. And there's ethical things one can certainly do from that position. But of course it doesn't, by that level alone, does not resolve uh, the, uh, the problems that occur, the triggering what are called the latent tendencies, the tendencies for self-criticism, the tendencies for trying to perform and become something, the feelings of inadequacy, the sense of what other people think, you know, what am I going to do with my life, uh, what's the point of this, uh, comparing myself with others, and you know, all that stuff still can go on. Because this sense of self has become the focal point for improvement. The focal point of meditation is to get myself together. Now, at a certain point, we have to perhaps uh, begin to listen more deeply, contemplate the teachings, and realize you know, the self is not the result and not the thing that can be released or perfected. It's always a bit of a mess, really. (laughs) 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 But don't take it personally, as they say. (laughs) Yet there is hope. And the hope is relationship, ongoing, very deep and and fully conscious uh, relational experiences. And this, uh, in many ways, is certainly for myself, this was not on the menu for meditation. I never thought of that. It never occurred to me. You know, as far as I was going, relationship was something you had with one person. You know, I had a relationship with my dad or my girlfriend or something or the other, you know, or my dog. You know, relationship with me, it, and so on, or me, her, me, him. Two separate entities. And uh, I'm talking about relationship, something much deeper, which begins to uh, work into that matrix, nama, rupa, vijnana. And rather than uh, focusing on the myself or the object, the other, focus on the relationship, on relating. Be mindful of that. Bear that in mind. So, again, the model of mindfulness that we probably have learnt, which is fair enough model uh, is to focus your attention on a particular object and use that to dispel contradictory uh, impressions or negative impressions just stay with breathing in breathing out for want of a better object and all that agitation just keep putting it to one side and steady up and all that kind of negative stuff keep coming out of that focus on that object 
feeling tired, take a break, come back to it, keep working on it till you get some sense of a strong, steady mindfulness that's able to dispel irrelevant or obtrusive or toxic material. And that's quite reasonable as, as, a, as a model, as a base model. But it has to be expanded. What we, I think, will begin to recognize, even within that model, is how dependent that object is upon my intentions, my attention, my energy, my sensitivities. And I begin to recognize probably more fully, it doesn't actually work if I start pushing it around. If I start coming in with, I'll get this done in half an hour, it's a disaster. If if I start coming in with, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, it's a disaster. If I start coming in with, well, I could sort of dabble with this for a while, it doesn't work. In fact, what it's about is the more and more I can empty myself of my programs and preoccupations and headstrongness and faltering and dithering and distractedness and craving and meandering and self-criticism, as I get emptier and emptier of that, (laughs) then it begins to feel more peaceful. So it pretty much works on the subject. And the object, if if we begin to relax some of our self-programs, also begins to change in my experience. That is, that which was an object is seen actually as a continually kind of vacillating, blurring, vibrating experience. What is a breath? What is it? Has anybody seen one? We're all doing it? Is it a thing? Is this something that's actually felt, sensed, shifting, changing, ephemeral, present, vibrant, it could be many things you know, if you deepen it can seem like light it can seem like silk, it can seem like space it can quieten down it can almost disappear what is it? what kind of object does all that? if it's an object and notice how the quality of that very much depends upon the subject if, our, if the subject, the apparent watcher, is more uh, open, uh, relaxed, uh, in tune, it gets more and more peaceful. And the forms that the object takes become irrelevant because what occurs in the relational sense is a sense of harmony and peace and openness. And then the object kind of disappears, the subject disappears and it's just the relationship Mm. on a good day (laughs) because the program oh that was good, how do I do that and then we go again (laughs) what I sense with particularly with mindfulness of breathing it's actually, it's so danged annoying Um, because it's there to train us. We think we're going to be mindful of breathing. Breathing is there to train us to be less in our heads, to be less impatient, to be more open, to sense subtler qualities of feeling and experience. It's training me to 
come out of the programs of my karma to the point to which if, there's a, if there is a realization it's not me that realizes <laughs> there is just realization and the me sense you know, doesn't really work so you know I think uh so this is, I would say, is, you know, uh, a f- kind of model of, or a model or a basic trajectory of, of how I see meditation practice. I'm not saying it's always there, it's not that like it's always working, but that, I would sense, is the trajectory. This is where, you know, there can be the, an experience without an experiencer. Uh, an experience that... Eventually the forms disappear and all that can be said is something like peace, harmony, ease, openness and, you know, stuff isn't really stuff anymore. Now, in sort of to begin to, if we begin to what meditation is very good for is because you know it, it is self-revealing. I mean, it reveals itself. No, nobody can really induct this into you. You can it can be suggested, it can be floated past, it can be check out this. But actually, it's pachatang means you have to. You can only it's only revealed intimately. Hmm? And because of that, it's incredibly authentic. Yeah, it's the most. It can be the most authentic experience that you could really say. Time and time again, I keep coming up against this understanding that that stuff that seems so much like me, that so much is not myself. It's a program. That thing that seems so habitual, so disappointing, so whatever. So long-term is not me, it's a program. <laughs> and there is a way in which that program can stop ceasing. And that ceasing, rather than being some destructive process, is actually blissful, because all that ceases is dukkha. <laughs> not some inherent self. <laughs> yeah, and the result is a quality of release. And I think incrementally, I... I would imagine, but I certainly would wish that in our more lucid <laughs> moments we, we are able to really experience that and release a release from there can be release from these afflictive programs. Hmm. Now that relational field, I'm suggesting it through through meditation because I guess this is our common ground. You know, in this particular place, I can talk about. Um, but and because it's a place of where you can check it time and time again in your own intimacy and it only works it there really otherwise it's just a nice idea but once it is there and you've begun to recognize what has to be released the programs that have to be moved out of but not uh, and those programs are actually informing 
infecting and forming your world, you or there is the requirement to take responsibility for your world as it manifests through all these domains. Mm. Yeah, the seen, the sensed, the imagined, uh, all the others. Or, that's just a little breathtaking, but a little bit more, to widen the boundaries of our compassion, our ethical sense, our mutuality, to just keep gently widening that to include more and more qualities of otherness. Recognizing as we do so, skillfully, truly, wisely, it will be for my benefit because part one of my programs will start to quieten down. So this is this is the beauty of dependency, codependency, mutual dependency, and uh, in this we begin to entertain the possibility that the world around that I see around me, you know, or I hear around me, or I imagine around me, past, present, future, others, creatures, people, humans, whatever, is a kind of instruction. This is like one of those, um, you know. Obstacle games that you got put upon. You didn't. They don't tell you that when you got born. <laughs> Nobody gave you the whisper that hey, this is a little trick they're going to play on you just to see what's going to rattle you, confuse you, <laughs> get you snarly, get you grasping. See if you can just weave your way through this lot, letting go, <laughs> find the skills. <laughs> And letting go, not as a kind of casual flippant thing, but letting go of the selfhood in it, the them and me thing, and all that that can contain. Such a trajectory is indeed hugely uh, transformative. Hugely transformative. To the extent, it's just saying, well, just do what you can. Everybody does a little bit. We all reach out an inch. Then the boundaries between us will get that much thinner and perhaps safer and more easily and carefully negotiable. Mm. Okay, how are you? How am I? How are you? Is this okay? Is that okay? Yeah. So this sense of uh, skillful intersubjectivity. Now against that model and why I feel this model is important to at least hold uh, and and begin to run through some you know scenarios in one's life is because there are certain very dominant uh, in my opinion uh, models that we inherit both in our personal subjectivity but also in our group subjectivity there's such a thing we might say as group karma cultural karma group karma and it doesn't it's not a guilt thing it's just a recognition we are embedded in a certain socio-cultural belief system whether we like it or not it has informed us it has established our perceptions you learn them from something you learn them when you were a little tot 
you had no way of knowing anything other than that. You learned this is normal, this is the real world, this is truth, this is reality. Yeah. And you didn't really have anything else to look at, so you took it on. Yeah. And so, you know, without getting into too much stuff around that, Two particular points that I'd like to, to um, um, bring up. Mm-hmm. One is a um, very common thing is supremacy. The myth of supremacy. Right? So surely human beings are better than cows because cows can't drive cars. <laughs> And cows couldn't possibly have invented, you know, vaccines and medicine and stuff. So we're better than they are. We are superior. Okay. Okay. We are definitely superior to cows. Okay. So, right. Go out in a field. Yeah. Tie yourself to a fence and try and live off the grass. <laughs> and see who's superior. <laughs> you or the cow. <laughs> Try and survive like a wolf does. <laughs> Try and hibernate through the winter. Try and live that without any, any clothes apart from your own skin and hair. <laughs> Who's superior? Is, you know, the car or the iPhone the most important thing ultimately? <laughs> it's become so because in our human domain, those are pretty important. Yeah, relatively, they are relatively important. If you only take the human domain into account, if you take the total relational domain into account, what's important is food, shelter, right? Uh, right? And we are pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, plants can produce their own food. They don't need any... Animals, don't, you know, they live out there. We can't run any faster than a chicken. You know, we would, without, without our stuff, we would be dinner. <laughs> Absolutely. So who's superior? The uh, quality that has made us so dominant, actually, wasn't so much... It was our, our ability to form collectives. That is, you know, ten of us against the leopard, possible. One of us against the leopard, no good. (laughs) Ability to form collectives. To form, you go hunt, I'll look after the little one. To share. You guys, you six guys, go off and see if you can find some food for the tribe. Our ability to share, to collect, to form sensitive, cooperative collectives where... We could hive off certain functions to others, not because they were better or worse, but just because it's e- we, sh- we can because we're so pathetic individually. <laughs> you know, we can't cope, so we have to sh- hive off functions and share them out amongst ourselves in order to form a collective. You know, like without that, 
how many people did it take you to get born? You may think just two, mom and dad, but no. no it was a whole team. Yeah, so just imagine the number of just human beings who participated consciously in you know, your, your birth, in your first five years, say. And then you look at the clothes you're wearing. Where did they come from? Who made those? And where did it all come from? If you trace it all back, it all came from the earth. Given. The given. It was all given. It was all given. And our intelligence was given. And our ability to to empathize was given. And our bodies were given. And we claimed them as our own. And we said, this is me. And we said, this is mine. And we said, I have the right to take as much as I want from this earth. When it gave us so much, it gave us everything. Hmm? And we can dump what we like onto it because it's just dirt. So the Supreme makes everything else inferior. You can't have two Supremes, can you? (laughs) So you just look at that, just even on a biological level. It's not that we don't have massive gifts. They were given. And, you know, you look at that, say, in even a socio-cultural situation. Yeah, you know, you could say, I've got a lot better than some sort of tribesman in Chad. But he didn't get the education. She didn't get the water. <coughs> yeah. She didn't get all this stuff that was, you know, being created. Yeah. And I inherited it. It's not mine. And as it's been given, surely, as an empathic being, my duty is to give it back, to share it out. Because that's what we are. That's how we got here. That's how we were able to stay alive you know, as, as creatures on this planet, through sharing and giving. So to claim something as mine is a crime. It doesn't mean no responsibility. It doesn't mean uh, no committed personal engagement. That's mine. The only thing that's mine, really, is my intention. This I must perfect. The rest of it, I'm blessed. I am still safe. I'm warm. I have food. Uh, I'm protected. Uh, I have, I have resources. I can make, I can make myself happier and wealthier, you know, and I can get intoxicated with it all, and think somehow I have a right to it. So you contemplate this, just even on a biological level, let alone on a national level, let alone on a religious level, right? Yeah. And when you see the accumulation of these these tendencies, these supremist tendencies on a racial level, on a religious level, on a national level, on a biological level, then you see this is the mass of suffering 
being enacted. Uh, and the relationships are toxic, um, destructive, and often unacknowledged. That's what ignorance is. Yeah. So just, you know, whenever that comes, because we're infected with this. I'm infected with it, you know. I can easily regard, a, uh, you know, a fly, a f- cow, dog, pig, and shamefully, other humans as well. You know. Bum, lazy. <laughs> you know, I may not act upon it, but those, that perception can come in, you know. Because, you know, he was disadvantaged, she was disadvantaged. She's got scruffy clothes. She's a tramp. She doesn't count. <laughs> right? You know? Rather than, oh, as they say, you know, in wiser cultures, a poor man or a poor woman is a disgrace to us all. We should be looking after him. <laughs> that's, that's the cooperative way. That's the non-supremist way. And the human potential is either to be that which includes and increasingly includes or that which excludes and increasingly excludes. And those potentials do not stay static. They, they move. If we move on the in- in exclusive potential, eventually you ex- even exclude parts of yourself. You exclude aspects of your own mind with shame, with I didn't see that, with repression. That exclusive thing begins to crush you. That's the nature of karma. And we're, you know, and this is going on with barely any conscious intention. Just letting the wheels roll, letting the program roll. Yeah. With, and it's always there's always a good reason for it as well. <laughs> As you probably know, if you look at media, there's always a good reason to the other, yeah? yeah. But as you meditate, you begin to check out the rhetoric of reason, the felt sense of it. And just bear in mind, you know, the possibility for just a little more include. You know, every time you get the ability and the encouragement and the capacity just include a little bit more, perhaps, of yourself. A little bit more of your stuff you don't like. Experience graciously. Experience spaciously. Experience in the domain of safety. Experience it from the ground. And you see if that doesn't change it by itself. Without you chopping and surgery and repression. Just see if just touching the ground, holding the space, breathing in and out. That's the meditation crystal of it. To begin to let your programs dissolve. And this of course is our meditation practice. But then as you get more confident in that, you see those edges keep arising. The other term that I'd like to bring to mind, perhaps less evocative, but pretty much the same thing. Uh, again, you know, 
Obje- objectification. <coughs> Something is an object. That's the fundamental program, fundamental assumption of consciousness. What I see is an object out there, independent from me in here. It is an object. And uh, in our human beings, we've cultivated that, and we've made quite a a merry little pile for ourselves (laughs) on that basis. Because, you know, the objectivity, of course, is the claim of science and rationality. And you can go lots of very interesting places through those, and you can get a lot of power with those. You can invent all kinds of interesting stuff with that that makes, gives you devices. And you can look at something through a telescope, microscope, lens of some kind. There's an object. It is distant from me. I can see it. It doesn't see me. Yeah. I can probe it. It doesn't probe me. Yeah. I can put it under a microscope and drop something on it. It's not going to do it to me. <laughs> I am the subject, it is an object, yeah. And how we've got a long way with that, yeah, along that trajectory. The object, which we approach with our devices, a device is a handy thing because it gives you that amount of distance from it. You know the story of the people with the you know, camera taking a photograph and getting so interested in the photographs they don't realise they're photographing a guy with a gun and, you know, suddenly blows the head off or photographing a tiger or something. And, you know, don't, they're so removed from the context that the, op- the device grants them that they, they, uh, they don't think they're here. They don't really think they're in the same domain as that which we're is at the end of my device. And now this is the, what they call the tele-reality. Tele in Greek means far, distant. We have telephone, television, telecommunication. Yeah. It's not really here. I can look at it. And I can walk out, switch it off. Uh, and just, just consider how this objectifi- objectification of in some ways an amazing capacity to witness and survey an objective world out there right moons of Pluto out there, imagine you know, unimaginably far out there I, they, you can look at it isn't that astounding blows your way the object world you can get some little particle and smash it to pieces under a 35-mile cyclotron. Cost you 20 billion to build this thing. You smash a cyclotron, the, the, smash the particle, and you get subatomic particles down to quarks to find the ultimate thing at the bottom of it all. This is called the object mentality. And every time you smash it a little bit more, it gets a little bit smaller. You've got it down to this thing called a, what's it called, Higgs boson. And this kind of thing virtually exists for some ten zillionths of an instant or something. This must be the ultimate thing. 
until somebody says, well, but who created the Higgs boson? <laughs> there must be something behind this. <laughs> and so you had this incredible power to zoom down to the micro world, to zoom out to the macro world. Yeah? Isn't that amazing? How much we know about the world. And what's the missing piece in all this object? The subject. Who's sitting on the chair looking at that thing? Why are they looking down that lens at me? I'm being surveyed by somebody. (laughs) What's the the subject is becomes invisible. And of course the subject is Nama, that naming, with all its uh, intentions and inclinations and perceptions and values and judgments and motivations. And that can skip by unheeded in our fascination with an objective world that we still can't find out where it begins, where it ends, where it came from and why. We don't know anything about that. You can speculate about the Big Bang and you can speculate about the size of the universe but you still don't know why, where, how big, what it is. So although this amazing potential can bring many benefits to us, as we recognize, there's one big benefit it hasn't really been that good at, diminishing our sense of self. In fact, it's tended to increase it <laughs> to a kind of uh, a calm arrogance, to being, you know, God got shoved off the throne, now we're on it. Objectification. And, yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, maybe? But once that lens is established, just recognize the nature of karma is, well, then he's an object. You're an object. Right? And when you're an object, when you're really an object, the really frightening thing is there's almost nothing that a human being will not perpetrate on an object. You witness the holocausts, the genocides, the slaveries, the torture. We lose the subject. They are an object. They are the cursed, the blamed, the lesser. They're the thing we need to get rid of. They're the ones that don't count. They're objects. They're objects that I project or my my culture, my values, my mind, my, my culture in fact, creates onto these beings. And their subjectivity we, we, do, we forget. We forget. It slips past. You know? 
not all the time, hopefully. But this is this is the f- fearful p- possibility of a human being. Right? You know, Pol Pot decided he wanted to reform his country and to purge it of all these terrible Western influences. So anybody who was intelligent, anybody who had soft hands, death. Get back to the, the earth. We don't want these people who polluted. Country as an object, people as objects. Yeah? So of course, you know, you can notice the great horror crimes of humanity but just realize we're all infected with that virus. Yeah. And it happens, you know, when it happens. We, we lose that. Uh, everything is a subject. Everything is subjectivity. Even a plant knows the soil, knows the insects, knows how to grow knows where the light is, inclines towards food and water. It's a subject. It's not an object. And my response to subjects has to be fellow, respect, offer, invite, request. We share. We cooperate. Because on an ultimate, va- on an ultimate plane, subject, subject, who's better? Who's better? Who has the right? That's all imagined. That's a myth. (laughs) So just to be aware of objectification, creating other people as objects, and just who we see, you know? Who we see. Who we imagine we see. And how to you know, recognize that and begin to own that, the fear, the blindness. I, I want to try to wear, rub some of that down. So please talk to me. <laughs> yeah. Please let me hear you. Please speak your voice to set to cure me. Be who you are, please. Don't be how I want you to be. <laughs> be who you are, please. So it can cure me of this uh, virus that we contain. One is mindful of the relational field. Because this is the only place where sanity, deep sanity can occur. It can't occur really deeply just around me. I would like to be sane. I hope one day I may be sane. <laughs> I sometimes decide I'll, I'll drop the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Harmless is good enough. <laughs> and and I, I, so for that to occur, I need to be informed. <laughs> yeah. And that means there has to be equivalence and listening, and attentiveness, and receptivity, and respect. Yeah? Uh, and in my uh, widening field, if I can widen that, because my sense is, 
You know, this is a this is a major thing for us all as humans, as individuals. Please free me from my fear, free from my opinionatedness, free from me from my stubbornness. Uh, I want to try and widen that. Yeah, as be, you know, give me time. I want to try and widen that. So that's that's the relational field to to be mindful of, to bear in mind, to to uh, honor and respect. So I've taken up um, a good amount of your time, and I thank you for your attention. So please. Uh, Feel free to wriggle around and do do what seems comfortable. And if you you know, please feel free to to um, go away. <laughs> but also feel free to stick around if you like to ask any questions or comments or something like that.